Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're coming back to the Frankfurt School. And we're going to do later Frankfurt School theorists this time. Last time, we focused a lot on the Frankfurt School's immediate reaction to the 30s, to Nazi Germany, and Frankfurt School theorists who were putting the state back into the theory of history, who were looking at how the state comes into the economy and influences it. Now we're going to go a little bit forward in time. We're going to start with. Horkheimer and Adorno. We're going to do a little bit of Marcuse. We're going to do some Habermas covering that stretch, mainly the post-war era, the late 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. So to get going, well, what's really distinctive about this later period of the Frankfurt School and what, what, what's different about it versus the first period? The main thing that's different is that the first period is kind of adding the state to the theory of history. The second period is going much wider, and it's focusing more on ideology in general, right? So when we say ideology, we're talking about that set of ways of thinking which prevent people from becoming left-wing, becoming Marxist, supporting revolutions, supporting socialism, the set of kind of cultural ideas or values or a system of beliefs which gets in the way of the Marxist theory of history coming to fruition. Right. So, if you might recall from a couple episodes ago, when we talked about Lukacs. You know, Lukacs talked a lot about reification and how this reification keeps people in their roles. Right. That reification is a type of ideology insofar as it blocks the Marxist theory from coming to fruition. And this interest in the Frankfurt School is on things that get in the way of the theory of history playing out in the way that Marx thought it ought to play out. So initially, it's okay, the state is becoming much more involved, and that's preventing the economic crisis from exploding in the kind of way which would produce a revolution. And now here, it's going to be okay, but there's also, uh, in addition to the state's direct economic interventions, cultural phenomena which get in the way of people developing class consciousness or developing a revolutionary attitude, right? Mm. So this, this all is kind of predicated now on culture being in the way, in part because once the state manages to implement the New Deal and Keynesianism and the post-war system and Bretton Woods, once all of that gets implemented in the post-war era, economic crisis seems to have been kept at bay. So the kind of economic crisis, which was originally supposed to be the thing which would undo capitalism, the falling rate of profit brought on by lower and lower wages, workers not being able to pay for the things that they make, uh, and therefore the capitalism not being able to find a market for its goods, leading to a surplus of of supply with insufficient demand. That problem looks to have been solved by Keynesian redistributive measures, at least to the people of of this period. So because there is no immediate economic threat, 
to capitalism. They now begin to look more for cultural ways in which capitalism could be undone, leaning more on that theory of alienation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? And along the way, they're bringing in a lot more of Max Weber. Indeed, it's been said that the Frankfurt School can be thought of as Weber-influenced Marxism, or a kind of hybrid of Weber and Marx. So there's this big emphasis on the state, and then there's this big emphasis on cultural phenomena, right? So last week, when we talked about the uh, Protestant ethic, Weber really positing a significant and major role for religion and for culture in driving the system of the economy, right? Very different from Marx's theory of history because it's centering religion as something which potentially drives economic development. In the same way with these late Frankfurt School theorists, they're looking much more at how our culture is reproducing the behaviors that are necessary to make capitalism work. And in doing this, they're giving the culture more and more influence in the theory, Mm. right? And the original base superstructure historical materialism is meant to help you by making it clear that the culture and the state and all of that stuff gets produced by the economic system. And that clarity of remembering that principle is supposed to help, help you figure out where to make interventions and figure out how to watch the process develop. And it gives you a little bit of a map that you can use. But as you go, well, that's a little bit too neat and clean. That's too simple. And you start to add things back into the base. This base superstructure theory stops being so neat and clean. And it stops really working as a map for how stuff happens. Soon, the theory starts to look like it just includes everything. And at that point, it becomes much harder to use. And at that point, you'll start to get people going on the one hand, maybe we need to return to a simpler, more utile version of this theory. And on the other hand, people going, uh, maybe we ought to just abandon the theory completely. So we'll kind of lead you through the threads of how all of that happens. And we'll start with Horkheimer and Adorno. Horkheimer and Adorno are very critical of the Enlightenment, right? So the Enlightenment, broadly speaking, the kind of period of development in philosophy and culture, beginning with, say, the uh, 17th and 18th centuries and carrying through uh, to the Second World War. And Horkheimer and Adorno identify the Enlightenment with the development of a kind of instrumental reason, an instrumental reason which is focused on capitalist ends like productivity and output and uh, utilitarianism, maximization of happiness, right? So these instrumental objects become under capitalism the only values which are legitimate. All other values get delegitimized and rendered aesthetic and peripheral, right? So if you remember from the Weber episode, when we were talking about how for Weber, there are many gods and demons, many different values that you can have, right? But for Weber, all of those values had to be subordinated to the state, right? And subordinated to the instrumental needs of the state so that the state can continue to survive and continue to create the space for value, right? Well, there's a kind of drying out of the values when that happens. When the values have to be subordinated to the instrumental goals of capital or the instrumental goals of the state, those values can't actually be 
the values that you use to decide how to live because they have to constantly subordinate themselves to some instrumental objective. So the values lose their substantive character and become aesthetic. They become ways of constructing an identity for yourself rather than ways of deciding how to live, deciding how to do politics, deciding what kind of state to have, right? And in this way, those values get kind of dried out and they become less meaningful. They lose a lot of their function and meaning. And if you compare this to, say, the way that uh, Christianity operated prior to the Enlightenment as uh, not just a religion that people believed in or that helped people structure their uh, worldviews, but actually something which guided and legitimated states and which guided and legitimated economic behavior and was infused into every aspect of life. When you move to something like this, where the those values are subordinated to the cat to capital or subordinated to the state, they don't feel as real. They don't feel as convincing because they're never really being given pride of place. Right? The mm. substantive values themselves have been instrumentalized as a way of legitimating capitalism and the state, and therefore, uh, and they've been instrumentalized to do that in a way which is too obvious. You know, of course, Christianity was also used to legitimate the state and to legitimate economic systems. But formally, it appeared as if those systems answered to Christianity, answered to the moral doctrine. Now, in this period, it looks to be the other way around. The appearances have flipped, and at this point, the religions, the moral theories, the philosophical theories appear to be subordinated to the market and the state mm. and, and therefore are, are being defined and shaped very overtly in ways which position them underneath those things. Though right? At the same time, part so, of the function of them is to distract from the, the market and the state. And so ideology serves to uh, distract people from the logics of the base for Marx, because because that's what that's what uh, what he calls false consciousness is. It's distracting people from their true conditions by making them uh, instead of being truly conscious of what's actually happening, they get false consciousness. They're distracted by fantasies and by um, fantastical imaginations uh, instead of focusing on the real thing, which is the actual operations of of the market and the state. Yeah. And when Marx is talking about that, he's talking about the historical role of Christianity, which really could yeah. distract because it was this big dominant thing, which the state and the market were formally subordinated to. But in this later period where there's a breakdown of that consensus and you have the many gods and demons of Weber spilling out all over the place, then you get this plurality of different things all tamed because they have to be not a threat to the state, not a threat to the market to be regarded as reasonable or mature, right? So what you're left with is a kind of vapid plural space with substantive values that are not really substantive because you can't actually use them to decide how to live your life because the way that you live your life is dictated by capitalism and the state. Yeah. Right? So at this point, it becomes just kind of a playground space to play around with values that you can't really implement, can't really live by. So they're not really substantive. They've been rendered aesthetic rather than, say, ethical or political, right? 
And so there's a frustration with this because this endless parade of aesthetic distractions makes it impossible to challenge the real, the real values that are governing the society, which are the instrumental values. The instrumental values of maximizing production, maximizing competitiveness, competing on the axes of, as Edmund often likes to put it, trade and war, mm. right? With no real alternative way of structuring your life. And so for Horkheimer and Adorno, the march of this enlightenment is the march of this instrumental reason. It's the march of this heavily bureaucratic, uh, production-oriented way of thinking, competitiveness-oriented way of thinking, which gradually undermines and destroys all other competing values, mm. rendering them lifeless and ancillary to itself, just means of perpetuating itself, right? So all of those religions, all of those theories get twisted into just ways of leading you back into going to work, just ways of leading you back into fighting in the army when you're called upon to do so, right? Mm. And so in this way, this whole period of the Enlightenment, which we often think, you know, liberals often think of as uh, a wonderful period of intellectual development, uh, and even, you know, utopian socialists and libertarian socialists often frame as this kind of wonderful period of, of growth and development. Uh, and even Marx, to a significant degree, saw this period as a progressive period that was going to end in better values. For Horkheimer and Adorno, it's not obvious that it's going anywhere positive. And, and beyond that, they have a pretty negative attitude about the whole thing. Since the Enlightenment is the march of a particular kind of instrumental reason, which leads directly into capitalism and the, and the modern state, as the Enlightenment develops, capitalism and the modern state just get stronger and more dominant, right? So as you come out of World War II, you don't get rid of the new nexus of the state with capitalism. That nexus just takes on a different form, right? So instead of getting, say, fascism, you get the New Deal and you get Keynesianism and Bretton Woods. But that liberal solution is from the point of view of these theorists, just another way for the state to be heavily embedded in everything, right? Mm -hmm. And as you come out of this period, you're also going to see the state heavily, heavily involved in trying to shape the kind of culture that it has, right? So you get all of these Hollywood rules in the post-war era for what kinds of movies are to be made and, and not to be made, the Hollywood code, right? And all of these efforts to, to kind of get the culture to go in a particular direction, the Red Scare to weed out all of the stuff that is culturally or ideologically hostile to the system, right? So there's this, this thought that there's a kind of attempt to build a liberal consensus which boxes out and gets rid of all of the religious, moral, spiritual ideas that are not amenable to instrumental reason. So the way that you stick around culturally is to find a way to reconcile with capitalism and the state. And if you don't reconcile with capitalism and the state, then you get pushed out yeah. through these vehicles of cultural regulation, right? And so you get a culture which just reflects instrumental reason. And you know, there's this emphasis on advertising and the role that advertising plays in socializing us and educating us to have the kinds of values and priorities 
which are necessary to sustain capitalism in the modern state, right? And commercialization and so on. This is where all of these kinds of of thoughts begin to get going. A lot of thoughts that we recognize in our contemporary discourse, a lot of objections that people make to our culture, a lot of those objections are rooted in Horkheimer and Adorno and this critique of enlightenment, right? Mm. The thing about Horkheimer and Adorno is that because it's a critique of the whole system of ideological change, the whole cultural evolution of the last several centuries, it's a relatively bleak argument because if that's the direction the culture has been going in for that long, well, what would possibly be the basis for resistance, right? If no matter what happens, there's going to be an ideological block that comes out of the culture that prevents people from developing the revolutionary attitude or from embracing socialism or Marxism or whatever you want to call it, uh, if that's going to be there because of the Enlightenment, then almost no matter what happens in political economy, that ideological block will remain there. Hmm. Right? And so if you take ideology very seriously as a very big and important thing, which really does get in the way of change, it can become very difficult to imagine what it would mean to get out of this or what could that even possibly look like. Right? And so you start getting this leaning on alienation. And this leaning on the individual as a subject who feels oppressed by conformity, right? And this is where I think it might be good to bring in Marcuse. But before we do that, Edmund, yeah, do you have any thoughts about Horkheimer and Adorno that you'd really like to share? Yeah, I think one difficulty in reading Adorno and Horkheimer is that dialectic of enlightenment is not exactly straightforward, and uh, they try to illustrate their argument. Um, with numerous literary examples, which readers may be more or less familiar with. So I think a helpful starting point is um, in, in reading this stuff, not just the, um, the beginning and end of Dialectic of Enlightenment, because they give their, their basic argument in the beginning and end of the book, um, and uh, give an explanation of some of these trends in how people uh, think about the world in, in the modern age in the chapter on the culture industry, uh, which is often brought up by uh, people using this stuff for uh, analysing the media and analysing film and radio. Because Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, particularly Adorno, um, among other things, uh, have a critique of um, contemporary culture and of how... uh, not just the whole economy, but particularly those areas of the economy uh, geared towards the, the production of, of, of symbols and of uh, webs of meaning work to, 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 to service the market imperative. Because it's often quite easy to separate these things. And what they're suggesting is uh, not that culture is a separate domain that's different from the economy. Instead, they're saying, oh, look, it's a culture industry. The culture is a part of the economy. Um, and uh, so I think reading Horkheimer um, and Adorno in that way can help to get to grips with, the, with, with how they are still quite grounded in, in reality because they still maintain this materialist theory of history that says that the economy, um, and particularly uh, you know, the political economy, is still driving things. 
In order to understand the, the philosophy of Adorno and Horkheimer, I think it's quite helpful to go to Horkheimer's book, Eclipse of Reason, uh, because in that book, he quite neatly summarizes how uh, he and Adorno have this um, concept of a pivot, uh, quite similar to Weber's concept of a pivot from uh, substantive reason of ends to an instrumental reason of means. And this goes hand in hand with the rise of subjective reason. Uh, and uh, Horkheimer identifies subjective rationality with objective reason um, about the whole, not just the parts. Uh, he identifies um, instrumental rationality about means with, with, with the rise of subjective reason um, about individuals. And so in this way, Horkheimer ties the uh, swap of uh, morality-centered legitimation stories with more instrumental ways of thinking, uh, with the rise of uh, individualism uh, and the focus on the individual. Uh, so, in, and in a way, that's that's the that's the two focuses of this analysis. It's both the rise of instrumental reason and the focus on uh, the individual uh, and the worship of the desires of the individual. Um, and there's also another thread going through this, not just this link back to Weber, which we can see in Adorno and Horkheimer, um, where they're trying to argue that Weber's idea that we are going through this long period of rationalization in modernity, um, particularly where uh, substantive forms of moral reason are swapped with, uh, with instrumental forms of bureaucratic economic reason, uh, calculating reason rather than contemplative reason. Um, they're also, to some degree, um, drawing on uh, thinkers like Lukács, who kind of becomes quite significant as well uh, in some of the other late Frankfurt School theorists like Marcuse and Habermas, because Lukács, as we discussed in previous episodes, is arguing that uh, reification is the means by which false consciousness is produced. Reification is how people are deceived about their situation because they are, um, they are fetishizing, as Marx put it, particular commodities, that they're fetishizing particular bits of the system. They fail to see the whole because they're getting obsessed by the parts. And so the reific- treat, treat abstractions as if they're real. Treat their roles as if they're real. Yeah, yeah. Take yeah. themselves seriously as commodities. Right. And also this notion of the loss of totality that Lukács has, that people f- stop seeing the whole of the system. It, reality ceases to be this kind of interlocking, you know, web-like uh, whole and becomes this, this segmented, uh, divided uh, um, uh, set of boxes into which things fall. And so, I mean, for instance, the notion in liberalism that you've got one box for economics, one box for economics, and one box for culture, and never shall each of them meet, you know, is an example of treating the parts as if they were the whole and focusing on the bits, focusing on the, the, the very small consequences of the social structure and not really paying attention to the system. And I think that's also another part of reification. It's not just treating uh, abstractions as if they were real, but also failing to see how society kind of fits together. And I think one way in which uh, the Frankfurt School theorists are trying to counter this reification is by uh, trying to look to the um, look to the totality, 
There is one other theorist, I think, who is quite important to the, to the late Frankfurt School in particular, not just Weber and Lukács, but also Freud, um, particularly um, Adorno, say, is, is, and also Marcuse are drawing quite a lot on Freud's uh, psychology and psychoanalysis, um, psycho- ah, psychoanalysis um, because Freud is, was saying that um, he's observed in his patients a tendency to repress certain desires. And this repression um, of um, hiding the stuff we, we don't want to think about is quite uh, pertinent to uh, society, uh, according to these late Frankfurt School theorists. Uh, Freud himself uh, seems to have thought this too in writings such as uh, Civilization and Its Discontents. Um, and there's this notion that um, the, in Adorno that we can see uh, particular forms of capitalism working in a way that's similar to the repression of particular desires in, in, in Freud's uh, psychology. So, for instance, Adorno argues that uh, uh, fascism is psychoanalysis in reverse. So instead of doing what psychoanalysis is meant to do, uh, which is uncovering the patient's repressed desires and critically examining them, instead fascism keeps the repressed desires repressed or else lets them kind of burst forth but in an unexamined way. So they've not been reformed, they've not been checked, they've not been recognised. It's just the blind uh, submission to the unconscious. Um, and so the, the blind acceptance of these assumptions, these reifications, these ideological uh, dogmas and, and suppressed emotions um, without paying any you know, critical attention to them without asking why they're there, just accepting things as they are, um, which is kind of like Mark Fisher's recent notion of capitalist realism. It's quite easy when you're in a system to just accept it as if it were natural, um, to just accept a social system as if it were a permanent natural thing, which is the same as uh, Lukács' notion of reification, where, as Benjamin was saying, yeah. we treat something that's social as if it were natural, we, we cease to see how things change, partly because we're, we're, we're worshipping the parts rather than the whole. And if we look to the whole, we would see how everything kind of fits together and how no one part of space or time is, is, the, is the whole thing, is the real deal. And that way we would see, we would see how things change. Um, but instead, we get caught up in these fantasies where we treat something uh, that isn't the good, that isn't the whole, as if it were the good, as if it were the whole. And w- we you know, might worship particular individuals, particular political figures, uh, or even particular values or particular experiences as if they were the good, as if they were the real deal, when in fact they're just shadows on Plato's cave. They're imitations of the truth. And I, I think in a way what what these uh, late Frankfurt School theorists see themselves as are political uh, psychoanalysts um, trying to uh, pay the critical attention to what is repressed in society, what is ignored, what is just assumed to be true, um, in the same way that Freud tried to examine his his patients' repressed desires. You know, these late Frankfurt School right. theorists try to examine society's repressed desires and ask why they're there and, and what can be done about them.
And then, of course, this also gets us into a discussion of which are the important things that are being repressed, right? So in the hands of Horkheimer and Adorno, the important thing that's being repressed is substantive reasons, substantive values, right? Uh, in the case of Lukács, reification, the thing that's being repressed is the reality that this role is just a role and isn't really you, isn't really what the human being is, Yeah. right? So when we talk about the repression of substantive value, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of Heidegger because the thing that causes Heidegger to become a Nazi is this thought that the Nazis have come up with a new be- way of being in world, which is an alternative to the instrumentality of liberal capitalism. And for Heidegger, just the fact that it's different in some way becomes an attractive aspect. It's insofar as it's a new way of being, he situates it as a creative act. And here you can see this, this repression, what you were talking about with, with the Nazis, uh, of just allowing whatever it is that's repressed to just come out and to just be cathartically expressed without any kind right, of disciplining. Right. right? So if yeah. you don't allow substantive values into the discourse and you make the discourse thoroughgoingly instrumental, those substantive values don't go away, but burst forth unexpectedly in kind of thoughtless, emotive ways because they haven't been subject to a, a process of substantive reason because there's no substantive reasoning about value anymore because value has been aestheticized. When substantive value does come back in, it comes back in in this dumb, emotive, cathartic way yeah. that is ultimately very destructive and poisonous. And so when you repress these elements of being a person, you don't get rid of them. You can't actually get rid of substantive reason or substantive values. But what you can do in suppressing it is cause it to be expressed in an unhealthy way. So the Enlightenment, rather than get rid of the things which from an Enlightenment perspective are irrational, those things become suppressed, become not something that you can reason about philosophically, and therefore, when they are expressed, they are expressed in a thoroughgoingly unphilosophical way, yeah. which has a cathartic impact, even on people as intellectual as Martin Heidegger. Yeah. Right? Because this, this thing that is suppressed is not tamed, is not looked at, is not examined, has been put off and said, well, that's not really you know, anything that is important because it's not useful in the competitive games of trade and war. Yeah. Right? So when it does come back in, it comes back in all over the place, all awful. Right? And another point that Edmund made that I think is very good, very helpful, is uh, do note that when we're talking about Horkheimer and Adorno and we're talking about the cultural industry, right? They're talking about how the culture comes out of the particular way in which capital is allocated in the culture industry, right? So the fact that, for instance, the television networks are owned by big media companies or the newspapers are owned by big print media companies who own many, many newspapers and the, owner, and the owners of which are very wealthy people or shareholders, right? This has an effect on the kind of news, on the kind of editorial content that can be spread through the media. Yeah. Who owns it? Who controls it? Right. And you can think about this in relation to the recent controversies over social media, right? If social media is a utility like the phone company where anybody can post and everybody's on a level playing field, well, that would have very difficult 
that would be very difficult for liberal capitalism. That could have very pernicious consequences because all kinds of ideas which have not gone through the gatekeepers of capitalism, who are gatekeeping to make sure that what goes through doesn't threaten instrumental reason. Yeah. Uh, since that stuff wouldn't go through those gatekeepers, stuff could potentially spread, which might potentially be more subversive, right? So yeah. it's very important that in the social media space, gatekeepers be established, right? And on the internet, gatekeepers be established. Now, this is done in a couple of ways. One is by allowing media companies to pay to move their media content up social media feeds, right? So if media companies can pay Facebook to push their content up the feed or pay Twitter to push their tweets up the feed, then those companies will have a leg up over smaller accounts and other people, right? But it, it can go beyond that. What if it's still the case that even when they're paying to push their content up the feed, some of these smaller accounts are still able to get attention and to get larger numbers of followers and to have an impact on the discourse? Right. So at that point, then you need to make Facebook and Twitter and so on responsible for the kind of content which is posted on the website in the first instance so that they will be able to police out content which potentially undermines the values that have to be defended. Because this whole system is predicated on there can be endless plur plurality when it comes to the aesthetic cultural space, but all of that has to be subordinated to the need to maintain liberal capitalism in the modern nation state, right? So as soon as those discursive spaces start to push against capitalism in the nation state, at that point, there has to be some kind of disciplining mechanism. And because ownership of the media, ownership of social media, ownership is concentrated in the hands of oligarchs and shareholders, it is always possible to implement those disciplinary mechanisms at any moment at which they need to be implemented, right? So you can oscillate between these periods of kind of spilling out and letting people experiment aesthetically with different values. And if that starts to get too hot and too dangerous to instrumental reason, closing that space back up. Yeah. But that the purpose of the space is to create this feeling of there being freedom, but that freedom is curtailed because it can never be allowed to triumph over instrumental reason. Right. And in yeah. that sense, it's not substantive reason anymore. It's not substantive value anymore. It's just an aesthetic, experimental, art, artistic space. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which expands and contracts based on the needs of, uh, of, of whether it's necessary to legitimate instrumental reason or whether it's become itself a threat to instrumental reason and therefore needs to be closed up a bit. Right. Yeah. So that's when we talk about the culture industry, all of this is still predicated on fundamental economic facts about how this cultural industry is organized, the fact that the media is in the hands of these oligarchs yeah. and these shareholders. Uh, and yeah, right? the, and the connection between the late and early Frankfurt School on this point it is perhaps this kind of dialectic between uh, unity and disunity. Um, because in the early Frankfurt School, uh, there was a debate between um, uh, Pollock, who argued that uh, state capitalism, as practiced in authoritarian states, uh, creates this um, 
political economic conformity around what the state requires. Whereas Neumann, in his book Behemoth, argues that the authoritarian state is very divided and lacks really any unity at all because it's uh, still torn by uh, the divisions wrought by uh, the, the continuation of the profit incentive and the fact that what's happening is that uh, uh, capitalism is not being uh, subjugated by the state as on Pollock's interpretation, but it's kind of taking over the state on Neumann's interpretation. And so we can see this, this oscillation between the concept of the authoritarian state as a leviathan in Hobbes's sense, as a, as a, a unity of them all, um, and the concept of the state as a behemoth, and Neumann is borrowing from Hobbes's um, uh, later book. I mean, after Hobbes's Leviathan, he wrote a book, Behemoth, about the Civil War, uh, the English Civil War, and so we can and you know, treating the Leviathan as a unified state and the behemoth as a state that's falling apart um, and you know, a state at war with itself. And I think we can see this this dialectic that we see among the um, uh, political uh, analysts of the early Frankfurt School, I think is imitated by this, uh, well, this analysis that Benjamin has noted in, in the late Frankfurt School, this dialectic between a kind of tyrannical uh, unifying ideology, a system of conformity, um, of one-dimensional thought, as Marcuse uh, put it, um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, an infinite plurality of of views, many gods and in demons in Weber's uh, framing. Uh, this alternation between extreme unity of thought and extreme disunity, and uh, and I think it, it makes sense to put these views together because, of course, one is in a sense the cause of the other. The alternation between Leviathan and the Behemoth, between kind of unity uh, and disunity. At the level of the political economy, is the spring of the alternation between unity and disunity at the level of culture and ideology. Um, I think one way of yeah. understanding this is through one of the, the syntheses of the early Frankfurt School, um, which is Ernst Frankel's The Dual State, uh, where Frankel argues that you have the normative state on the one hand, uh, which combines the profit motive with law and legislation. Um, creating an, a, a quite extreme unity around the economic uh, sphere, um, protected by this legal um, superstructure. Um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you have the prerogative state, which combines uh, political power with aesthetic culture, and aesthetic culture is framed as the domain of power, and law is uh, framed as the domain of. Uh, of domain of profit and never, never the twain shall meet. So power is not meant to go and uh, change profits because power's domain is culture and profit's domain is law. And this, you know, artificial separation, um, which is of course not a real separation, uh, but a kind of uh, an artificial, um, fantastical uh, separation, but also representation with some with some correspondence to how things. Have worked in reality, where you get this this switch from the unity of the normative state to the disunity of the prerogative state. And I think often when when we think about the extreme disunity of, of uh, capitalism, we're thinking about how how the culture can lead to these many gods and demons. Whereas 
when we're thinking about the the extreme unity, we're thinking about how everything can be unified around the instrumental rationality, about around the logic of technology and the economy. Um, whereas the, the the disunity comes out of the out of the culture that the class structure produces. So the economy and the politics might still be at the base, but it's this this flip in a way from the economic uh, legal unity to the political cultural disunity that is one way of framing the the alternation yeah right right and so i think i i'm really glad that you mentioned frankel because if you hadn't i was going to <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes yes uh, this emphasis on the unity around instrumental value and the disunity around the substantive value and therefore the substantive value aestheticized and kind of pushed into the background. Yeah, right? yeah, that's exactly but the, it. Yeah. The mutual interreliance of the two things, because instrumental value, if it was just by itself, it would not satisfy us. So we have to have this aestheticized plural space to legitimate and support instrumental value, because instrumental va- reason doesn't actually cover all of the things that people care about, yeah. even though it purports to. And conversely, to have this aestheticized space you have to have none of these values actually ruling. If any of these values were ruling, then you would have hot political conflict. So to have instrumental value do the work of actually ruling the economy, that enables you to have this plural space, because otherwise the plural space would just be a space for civil conflict. Mm, yeah. right? So both of these two sets, setups rely on each other, very much so. Yeah, 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 and yeah, yeah. The theorists of this period, it's interesting because sometimes there is more attention being paid to the totality of instrumental reason. And other times, there's more focus on the kind of meaningless many gods and demons, the meaningless choices. Right, right. right. And I guess. And that's the hallmark of this period is, is that on the one hand, everything is the same. On the other hand, it appears that you have all of these choices. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the choices are are always pitched as kind of superficial or meaningless. They're just consumer choices. They're just aesthetic choices. It's mm. how do you want to paint your room? Yeah. Yeah. I think the reading of the late Frankfurt School is criticizing the the extreme unity of of uh, post war capitalism and not the extreme disunity too. It is you know of course a misreading. But it's also partly a function of the fact that post-war capitalism is this this state capitalism that is more easily seen um, through Pollock's framing than through Neumann's framing. Because Neumann's framing of of authoritarian state capitalism being a behemoth, being an anarchy, is slightly counterintuitive to how people uh, tend to think about things. Because it, you know it's actually one of the ways in which authoritarianism has been reinterpreted through. Uh, liberal bourgeois media is by painting it simply as an extreme unity and not also as an extreme disunity, and through privileging Pollock's interpretation over over Neumann's in this way. But if we put the two together, of course, we can see how not only was authoritarian state capitalism um, both a tyranny and an anarchy, but also um, post-war uh, democratic state capitalism, which followed incidentally, Pollock's advice of doing state capitalism in democratic states and not just authoritarian states, because Pollock thought that for some reason it would work better perhaps in democracies than in authoritarian regimes. Um, we can also see that the alternation between tyranny and anarchy 
though perhaps to a less accentuated and obvious degree um, in these post-war democracies too. Uh, to a sub- substantial degree, we're still in it. And Benjamin has said in previous episodes how this post-war era that we think we're out of because we're in this kind of supposedly neoliberal age, post, post-1980s, post-1990s, this kind of globalized market system where the individual is um, held as the center of all things. But it's also got post-war characteristics to it because you've got this hegemonic, you know, instrumental rationality still going. That's still there. That unifying thread uh, is, is still going strong. And if anything, it's, it's well, kind of stronger than ever. We, we have a lot of the institutions left over from the post-war era. They've not entirely been eradicated. So I, I like to describe the neoliberal era as the kind of period of decay of middle capitalism. Yeah. Uh, and the transition period from, say, middle to late, yeah. in opposition to people who frame our moment always as late capitalism and who are always looking for how this is the end, I, I prefer to see this as a transition out of a middle stage yeah. rather than uh, straightforwardly uh, a late stage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, this gets, gets on to the point about Marcuse. So the thing about Marcuse is that the people who really got into Marcuse in the United States, in California, really, really leaned into the one-dimensional man element in Marcuse's thought. Mm -hmm. This thought about stultifying conformity, right? right? right. And the thing is, if you are born in liberal society and you grow up in liberal society and then you read the Frankfurt School or you read people who have read the Frankfurt School, the tendency is to pick up on the elements that are to do with the stultifying conformity and the dominance of instrumental reason, right? Yeah. Those elements are picked up on. But the superficiality of the of the choice, that element of the thought tends to be downplayed or neglected. Yeah. And also the right? critique of individualism. Um, partly, I mean, that is partly understandable because you still have Kant playing a significant role in in the Frankfurt School because you know, Fra- the Frankfurt School is known as the the beginning of critical theory, uh, and the the word critical theory kind of harks back to Kant's uh, critique of pure reason, his and his critique of practical reason, as well as his, his critique of judgment, um, his three critiques of, of different uh, you, kinds of reason. Yeah, you also have some differences within the late Frankfurt School on that point. Sure. So yeah, Horkheimer, yeah. for instance, is an especially uh, critical of individualism, yeah, as yeah, yeah. these theorists go. Horkheimer is uh, has a qualified defense of the family that inspires Christopher Lash, right? Uh, yeah. And in contrast, if you look at Marcuse, Marcuse is much more emphasizing of the individual in his work yeah. and emphasizing the way in which the individual is stultified. And there is this constant tension between, on the one hand, emphasizing the ways in which the individual is stultified by reification, by ideology by conformity, by all of these things, and talking about how the individual is celebrated as the chooser. Yeah. And that's part of how the individual gets deceived into embracing this stultification, right? So the individual is denied the opportunity to really pursue substantive value, to live in the way aristocrats lived, unbounded by the division of labor and able to pursue the good life. The individual is denied all of that, but the individual gets a set of superficial and meaningless choices, 
which make the individual feel free, right? Because liberty becomes associated with making these kinds of choices rather than with freedom from the domination of work mm. or freedom from the domination of exploitative work arrangements, right? So the thread that people tend to pick up on is the tyranny of instrumental reason rather than the superficial choices thread. And if they do pick up on it, they tend to understand the argument too narrowly to be about just consumerism, right? Mm. It's not just about consumerism. It's about how every choice, every area of life becomes marketized and becomes like a consumer choice, right? So it's not just that there's consumerism all over the place, that there's decisions about what kind of cereal you want to buy or other things like that. It's also that religion becomes commercial. The kinds of churches that spread throughout society, especially in the United States, are dictated by which ones are good at, at attracting consumers who are looking for particular kinds of things out of going to church, right? And so those churches are playing into what those people are looking for instead of trying to give them substantive reason or substantive values which are different from the values that they have when they come in. Many of these churches are focused around tapping into the impulses that are already there, the uh, opportunities for catharsis that are already present, right? Yeah. And so all of, all of these things, you look at relationships and love and romance, where people start to look at romance as a kind of sexual marketplace, where they're, uh, or, or friendships as a kind of marketplace where they're deciding who to hang out with or not hang out with based on whether or not those people uh, are service them, whether those people are compatible with them, whether those people are good fits with them. And so there's no focus on mutual relationships where there's reciprocity mm -hmm. and balance. The focus is, does this relationship serve me? Does this institution serve me? Does this job serve me? So everything is being treated as something which is meant to service the individual. And the individual is being encouraged to judge everything based on whether they are finding it satisfying in the same way that a customer judges whether they're satisfied with a product, right? And in this way, everything is turned into a product, everything, mm. including all of the people that you know. All of your relations, right? Networking, networking, treating the people that you befriend or the people that you meet along the way in life as just people to facilitate your career, mm. right? And judging whether or not it's worth building a relationship based on the utility of the person to you, right? Rather than social reciprocity or uh, genuine commitments based on affection or love, right? It's entirely uh, built around treating everything as a product and inserting the market into every domain of life, including all of the domains which used to have anti-market values and therefore to purposefully set themselves apart from that, right? So we talk about, for instance, freedom of religion in the United States. Freedom of religion in the United States is freedom for all of the churches to compete in a religious market, right? And therefore, freedom for all of the churches to operate in a market which encourages the kinds of churches which prevail in a market, hmm. right? And because the market is the only legitimate means of making decisions according to the instrumental reason which dominates the society, that doesn't tend to attract 
as much negative attention. People just go, well, what? You have a choice about which religion that you follow. You have a choice about who you date. You have a choice about uh, where you go to work. You have a choice about what kind of cereal you buy. Right? If you think freedom consists in those kinds of choices, then there's no point of dissatisfaction. right? And so people, when they read this stuff, especially Marcuse, they're inclined to go, well, it's the stultifying. It's the fact that everyone's behaving the same way that's the problem. Right. And if people would individuate more and develop their own tastes and break with popular culture and decide that they don't like the stuff that's on CBS, NBC, and ABC, and they don't like the stuff that's on the radio, and they listen to different music and watch different television, right? This is the beginning of the edgy teen, right? The edgy teen misreading of the Frankfurt School, right? And there are a lot of adults who have the edgy teen misreading, right? Most teenagers, of course, don't read the Frankfurt School, but they're influenced by the edgy, the edgy misreading. And the edgy misreading is, well, if you transgressively don't like the same kinds of artistic outputs that other people like, or if you don't like the same kinds of religious views that other people like, then what you're doing is meaningfully subversive or transgressive because you are exiting the monoculture, right? Defying popular culture. And a lot of people get caught in this idea. And part of why they get caught in it is because it's very flattering to think that you, the individual, are special, right? Because you choose differently. You've made different market choices, different consumer choices from other people. Those other people, they just all choose on the basis of superficial things. But you, you choose on the basis of meaningful things, right? The issue is, it's all consumer choices all the way down. Yeah. It's all still the case that you all go to work and you all earn money and then you all spend that money on various hobbies that purport to present you with real value, but which are just ways of psychologically treating you so that you will go back to work and you will continue to be productive. All of those choices, whatever you choose, whatever you pick to fill that time, it's all about preparing to go back to work. So it's all in Aristotle's sense, amusement or play. You're denied mm. access to leisure and therefore denied access to the good life. Leisure being for Aristotle, not just time that you spend faffing about, but time that you spend actually contemplating what's good and, and what has meaning and what's worth doing. And then action, going out and doing that and implementing that, right? As long as everything you do is dictated by you have to do it or you can't pay the bills and you go hungry and you lose your house. As long as your life is dictated by that fundamental circumstance, which is what it means to be a worker, to be in that circumstance where you must work or you will be deprived, all of those consumer choices are just ways of perpetuating it and just ways of making yourself feel okay. And it doesn't matter really what you've chosen. And you're not better or worse because in your time when you de-stress after going to work, you listen to Bach versus listening to Kanye. Versus listening to, I don't know, The weekend. right? It doesn't matter. Those yeah. are just consumer choices. Those are all just ways of preparing you to return to work. Why They're not just all aesthetic. Three? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not all three? Why not yeah. all of them or none of them or any of it? None of it matters. right? All of that is just aesthetic choices. It's just aesthetic. You can't be a better or worse person than somebody else based on what you do to prepare to return to work. 
Hmm. Right. That's the thing that's getting occluded in all of this. And this is the sense in which we are reifying. We are treating the things that we do as just you know, these are things that we do just to return to work, but we treat them as the things which define us and set us apart from others and make us special or important. Yeah. Right? I, I think I mean we, I we organize be, in I mean, fandoms. Somewhat unfair to dismiss aesthetics as as not as not at all morally relevant because they can be used as a channel as a way in which people ex- try to express moral messages now the aesthetic itself doesn't necessarily have a kind of uh, a moral content but it can be used in a way that uh, that, that can communicate that but i guess you could argue that it's window dressing at the same time Although it's well, still aesthetics, quite telling that, if, if, it's, yeah. if it comes out of the, the leisurely process where you contemplate what it means, say, to be a good painter, and then right. you paint on the basis right. of what you believe to be good, not worrying about whether your painting will sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're doing that, that's a very different way of engaging with, with aesthetics from what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody who uh, comes home from work and has to make a decision about whether uh, are they going to be a... Uh, somebody who plays video games? Are they going to be somebody who goes out and LARPs? Are they going to be somebody who uh, watches television? And then, you know, okay, I'm going to watch television. Am I going to watch CNN? Am I going to watch Fox? All of these forms of of, uh, entertainment are mainly passive because these people don't have the time or the energy to actually create. Yeah, Because that time and energy is taken up by work. So all of this is about regenerating energy to return to work. Right. But people yeah. go, well, I'm a fan of this show. I watch this show and therefore I'm I'm this kind of person and you watch that show and therefore you're that kind of person. Right. I, I'm not saying that you can't engage in art or in aesthetics in any kind of useful way. You certainly can. And lots of people have done. Uh, but for the most part, people who have to go to work every day are only able to engage in aesthetics in this consumer kind of way where they're mm-hmm. choosing to consume different kinds of entertainment. Yeah, and they're and often, not really uh, able to make anything. I guess often as a kind of cathartic release, as a release of these suppressed. So I think that's the sense in which aesthetics do have, you know, or can have a kind of a moral a thrust to them. But the problem is that sometimes it's just, it's just a cathartic release um, rather than anything more specific. So the aesthetic serves as a way of just releasing the repressed emotions, the desire for something more than uh, that than the money-centered uh, kind of lives that people are forced to have. Well, and, and if you do have yeah. time, if you do have time to actually make something, right, then there's all this pressure to monetize your hobby. Right. If you've actually had time to make something, well, then that should become a side hustle. Right. Oh, so right, as soon as right. something starts to be as soon as something starts to be anything more than just amusement, there is then this impulse to marketize it. Right. 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 And then a lot of people, when they're trying to get out of having to be a, a worker, they want to replace it with a marketized hobby. Right. And at that point, yeah. the hobby is is a means of providing for their subsistence. It's not something which comes out of their their contemplation. And this is why a lot of people who do make stuff have a difficult time balancing on the one hand the fact that they have to earn a living with, on the other hand, what they really believe deep down about what is good or bad and what is useful or not useful to make. Right. This is why you yeah. have great actors playing terrible roles in awful movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean I think on the point of about the misreading of Marcuse, 
and emphasizing the point about uniformity and not not this broader point um, about um, the uh, way in which aesthetics and thought are shaped in a individualist on or cathartic and unthinking way. I, I think you know, another problem with the misreading is that it misses what Marcuse actually said, particularly in um, works other than One Dimensional Man, which I think itself uh, disproves the interpretation. But in an earlier piece, um, Some Social Implications of Modern Technology, uh, Marcuse writes, the philosophy of individualism established an intrinsic connection between individuality and property. According to this philosophy, man cannot develop a self without conquering and cultivating, cultivating a domain of his own to be shaped, to be sh- shaped exclusively uh, by his free will and reason. Uh, and he, he goes on to say that the process of production has long dissolved the link between individual labour and property and now tends to dissolve the link between the traditional form of property and social control. But the tightening of this control counteracts a tendency which may give the individualistic theory a new content. Uh, so in other words, uh, Marcuse is, uh, he, he actually cites um, um, Horkheimer uh, at this point in, the, in his piece because he's um, relating his account to Horkheimer's account of the, the rise and decline of the individual, um, or the supposed rise and decline of the individual in modernity. So you have the enlightenment concept of the individual as the centre of all things. But this is not cashed out in reality, because the individual is worshipped, partly because the individual is becoming subject to these technical processes that make individuality impossible um, and make the cultivation of uh, of habits in a, in a kind of more um, free way impossible because everything is still oriented towards a singular, a singular market logic, um, which kind of I think links a bit uh, to Habermas's account of the life world uh, being colonized by the system. Um, because for Habermas, the problem is that the, the way in which uh, people uh, go about their lives. Uh, their aesthetic pursuits, their moral pursuits, uh, their social relations have become uh, very much uh, subject to uh, administrative power and the money economy. And money and power together for Habermas can have a tendency to erode uh, solidarity and uh, erode the bonds that bind people together. And uh, this is an account that Habermas develops in the 70s, first with the book Legitimation Crisis, uh, where he claims that that the capitalist system is uh, is through colonizing the life world, um, creating a crisis that, that though it starts with this economy, can't be solved by the economy. And so how is it solved? How is it dealt with? Where it's transferred from the economy to the polity, and then from polity to culture, where we start trying to resolve these fundamental economic problems in in aesthetic or cultural ways, which of course can't work if the problem goes back to the economy and the economy is the cause, then you can't solve it by doing something 
that isn't actually addressing that root cause. Uh, Habermas himself doesn't say that this is this is the answer. He just says that this is what's been happening. And then in the 80s, he pivots um, with the book uh, Theory of Communicative Action to say, well, well, maybe if the problem is this instrumental reason coming from the economy and it's eroding substantive reason of morality, we need a third kind of rationality to, to help us out, to help try to mediate between these things and to help get us out of this trap. And he calls that third kind of rationality communicative rationality. And communicative rationality is neither about calculating the means necessary to satisfy certain uh, predetermined ends, as in the case of instrumental rationality, and nor is it uh, simply contemplation of the good and of the right ends in life, as in the case of substantive rationality. Instead, communicative rationality is, as the name suggests, about how people relate to each other um, in society and uh, share ideas, and they might be sharing ideas about what's good, but it's the fact that they're doing so in this communicative social way with some kind of parity of participation among, among the various people uh, in, in this discursive space. And so Habermas thinks that perhaps maybe we can get out through, through communication, but he, he realizes that that's not quite enough and that something else needs to be said about how institutionally this is going to be done. And then in, in the 90s, in the book Between Facts and Norms, Habermas cashes this out a bit by saying, well, perhaps uh, it's communicative rationality that will get us out through conversing with each other in a way that helps to refine our norms um, in light of practice. Uh, and Habermas says that institutionally this could be done through law, because uh, law is an institutionalized space, right, that is dealing uh, not simply with what is, it's not simply dealing with, with might, but with right. And it's trying to address a way of mediating between facts and norms. So the title of the book, Between Facts and Norms, um, is you know, his argument is really suggested by the first chapter where he says that, which is called law as a category of uh, social mediation between facts and norms. And that's Habermas's argument that law can help to navigate between the extremes of instrumental rationality governed by the logics of money and power on the one hand, and substantive rationality on the other hand, governed by uh, what ought to be rather than what is. And so he's kind of betting on culture and law as the way out. But specifically what he's trying to say is that, well, if we want to protect this communicative space, which we don't want to be uh, too eroded by, by the system, we want to use that communicative cultural space of conversation to help give us certain laws, to help refine our laws in a way that our laws protect the state and culture from, from the influence of, of the system, of the economic uh, system, and that creates certain procedures that ensure that, for instance, that, that the rich can't just use money to uh, buy, um, buy elections or buy too much cultural power. Now, it's of course not totally clear how this works. I think an interesting question is, could it work? Um, because uh, Habermas is suggesting that the life world could somehow be sealed off from the system and that we could seal off um, culture and perhaps politics from the economy. Uh, now, but without actually necessarily doing much 
transformation of the economy itself. The idea being that profit um, as something that can colonize or shape or cause decay in uh, the spheres of uh, culture and um, power and law can be somehow prevented from doing that. And that law can insulate culture and power from uh, from profit. I am framing it in these terms partly because I think there's a link between um, Habermas's argument and Frankel's the dual state. Because for Frankel, the normative state, uh, a very unified thing, combines profit and law, uh, whereas the prerogative state combines power and culture. Uh, and what uh, Habermas is suggesting is that we keep these things separate by using a part of the normative state, namely law, to prevent profit from taking over the prerogative state by preventing uh, aesthetics and morals from being further colonized by economics by creating certain legal procedures that ensure that uh, the economy doesn't overstep its limit. But without actually changing the profit motive, this seems like quite, at least quite a difficult endeavor to do because it's very difficult to get those guarantees that uh, Habermas is looking for, especially given that profit itself creates power. And these aren't two different things. The, the separation between the normative and the prerogative state uh, in Frankel, but also uh, Habermas's separation between uh, politics, economics, culture, and law. Uh, it, uh, these are separations that aren't quite true. They have some utility, but there's so many links between them that it's very difficult to form any firm boundaries between one sphere and the other, especially if what you're trying to do is prevent the economy from disrupting anything else, because that's what the economy does, that the market economy is very dynamic and it has effects on everything else um, because it's concerned with the development of te technology, which is vital uh, to getting the you know resources uh, to keep people alive and keep people satisfied. And, and so I think Habermas's project has, as a consequence, sometimes been criticised as utopian because he's thinking that solidarity uh, in, in the cultural sphere can be used to prevent uh, money and power from taking over anything. It's interesting that he does say that the state is also being colonised by the economy because he could say that power could be a way of trying to uh, defend culture from the economy or even change the economy itself. But he doesn't want to say that because he thinks that both profit and power are both concerned with this instrumental rationality. And so he doesn't want to use that. He wants to get away from the base and find a way of using the superstructure together with the the law that mediates for Habermas between between uh, base and superstructure to try to to try to protect the superstructure from the base, to protect the life world from the system. Um, and that's a, now, now his this strategy. Is, this is not to say that Habermas is not interested in eventually overcoming the profit motive or eventually overcoming instrumental reason or capitalism. But he thinks that this is done through protecting the life world and then extending the, the, its development. Yeah. That as the life world develops, it will develop new values uh, new legitimation criteria, which make it increasingly more and more difficult for instrumental reason to prevail without being altered mm. and subordinated to the life world, right? Yeah. But first, he wants to box out the colonization, and then he wants to grow and develop the life world to the point at which it can potentially 
be used to make changes to the economy. So in this sense, I don't think Habermas has abandoned the goal of changing the economy, but he's very, very much altered the process by which this is supposed to happen. Mm. And if you notice that this colonization of the life world, this is kind of a way of pitching the entire critique of Adorno and Horkheimer, right? So if you think about Adorno and Horkheimer, it's a very depressing contribution. I think it's very interesting and very intellectually challenging for us uh, because it pushes on us to, to overcome and to take seriously a very, very difficult, deeply ingrained problem, right? The thing about Adorno and Horkheimer is you can get to the end of, of Dialectic of Enlightenment and go, well, how would you possibly overcome this? What would it mean to do anything that wasn't more of this, right? Where would we go from here, right? So Habermas positions all of that as this kind of colonization process, the process by which everything in substantive reason is made to service instrumental reason, right? And Habermas goes, well, the way to do this is to somehow prevent instrumental reason from overrunning substantive reason, right? So substantive reason is identified with the life world and, uh, and instrumental reason goes after and colonizes yeah. the life world, right? The way that Habermas tries to get out of this is to kind of return to Hegel and introduce a progressive theory of cultural change, right? So there's now this thought that if you can, to some degree, limit the influence of the economy or protect the life world, the cultural sphere from the economy, that left to its own devices, the cultural sphere will develop in a constructive direction, right? And that therefore the enlightenment can be saved from this colonization process. And therefore the enlightenment can be redeemed as not a bad thing and not something which leads to worse and worse stuff. And instead of the life world being this place where suppressed substantive urges come out and wreak havoc, the life world can be this place where we develop better and better and better uh, moral and substantive criteria, and then that criteria can be applied back on the economy. Yeah. Right? So this completely flips the base superstructure arrangement. Completely flips it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so th the question then is law... It, is being kind of moved. Its role is being moved in comparison with Frankel. Frankel yeah. is associating law with the maintenance of the economy. Now law is being moved to the protection of the cultural sphere. So right. it's being moved to something which is meant to defend the prerogative state. Yeah, from the normative state, from 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 profit, which is kind of ironic. Right? Yeah. So that's that's a major revision to Frankel. And then you've got this major revision to Adorno because Adorno, who is seeing culture as always in some way affected by capitalism. For a classical Marxist, of course, culture is part of the superstructure, so of course it's affected by the economic system. And to say that you can have culture independent of the economic system or that these two things can be separated or put into different lanes, that conflicts fundamentally with the theory of history, mm. which views the culture as emergent from the economic conditions, right? And so when you talk about, say, the culture industry, of course, for Adorno and Horkheimer, the fact that the culture is structured through these oligarchs who dominate the media and dominate artistic production, of course, that influences the kinds of ideas which come out of it. And if you were to want 
to have a culture which doesn't emerge from those things, you would need the uh, capital which is used to dominate and cultural production. You would need that capital to be in some way socialized or broken up. Yeah. Right. You would have to make some kind of change to the whole culture industry if you wanted a different kind of culture. And that would involve making some kind of economic intervention. Right. Yeah. Habermas suggests that we already have culturally what we need to make those interventions. That has to be the argument. So we have to be able to somehow bootstrap our way up from the culture that we already have. Yeah. I, I, the culture that we already have has to be sufficient to impose the laws which will further protect that culture. Yeah. And this is partly because Habermas thinks that the life world isn't always colonized by the system. And he thinks that because the life world used to be more significant, well, maybe it could be significant again. Hmm. And this relies on a, a very progressive theory of change, and it relies on having a lot of faith and a lot of hope in the liberal cultural discourse, right? Yeah. And one of the biggest divisions within the contemporary left, and it's a division that doesn't get talked about very much explicitly, but it's always there just under the surface. And uh, very often, if you talk to different people in the contemporary left a little bit about this kind of thing, you'll, you'll see where they stand. Uh, there's a big difference between people who fundamentally agree more with Horkheimer and Adorno that the liberal culture is itself very much subject to capitalism, comes out of capitalism, reflects capitalist values. And people who think that this liberal culture has a potentiality for generating socialism still now, right? Yeah. So if you go back to 100 years ago, of course, the original argument is that capitalism will produce the conditions under which new kinds of ideas will, will emerge. And therefore, in some sense, socialism would have to emerge from liberalism, right? But that is supposed to happen in response to economic changes in the original Marxist theory, right? Hmm. The utopian socialists who didn't share Marx's theory of history thought this was much more straightforward, that liberalism, liberal values could just be developed to such a point that they imply socialism. Right? If you just take equality and you develop it, it will get you something that looks like socialism. If you take liberty and you just develop it, it will get you something that looks like socialism. Right? This theory that you just take the liberal values and you just keep building them and you keep discursively growing them and they will eventually give you a set of criteria which looks like a demand for socialism. Right? Yeah. That's a faith that requires a strong faith in the way that liberalism will develop. Now, if you are Marx, you can ground that faith in this belief that capitalism is also creating material conditions in which it will have to be replaced. That capitalism is creating the material conditions in which capitalism no longer makes sense as an economic system in purely economic instrumental terms, right? That there will be a contradiction between the economic system and its own instrumental values and instrumental reason. That it will no longer be productive to continue to do capitalism, right? Yeah. That it will no longer be competitive, that it will no longer be the thing that best protects people from uh, colonization or imperialism to do capitalism, right? See that? So there's an indexing there to some kind of economic change as the thing which will make it possible for us to culturally move on from liberalism to socialism. And in that way, the connection between liberal ideas and socialist ideas 
is still grounded on a change in underlying material conditions. That's there in Marx, right? The utopian socialists propose that this can happen without really thinking about the material conditions. Marx has it happening, but has that grounded on a change in the material conditions, right? The writers in the post-war era are going, it seems like the material problem has at least immediately been resolved. And therefore, if change happens, it would have to come through the culture and the culture is entirely too dictated by the economy. And this is the problem. Right now, when you move to Habermas, now you are having once again the suggestion that liberalism can develop the values for socialism. And you're returning to something that's more like a utopian socialist narrative, a pre 1848 socialist narrative that liberal ideas and socialist ideas just fit neatly together. And therefore, socialism can grow out of liberalism culturally as long as that cultural growth is not uh, overly interfered with by the economy. And if you're a Habermasian, you have to believe that that natural affinity between liberal values and socialist values is strong enough that that's going to happen even in the face of the kinds of interventions into the culture which already have occurred, right? So Habermas is perfectly aware of things like the Red Scare. He's perfectly aware of uh, the extent to which the media is owned by relatively small numbers of people. But despite that, Habermas thinks that the affinity between liberal ideas and socialist ideas is strong enough that this cultural development can still happen. Right? So he's acknowledging the possible threat of there being interventions which make it difficult or impossible. But his level of optimism about the way the culture will develop is quite high. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that his most optimistic work about this comes in the 90s at the same time that Rawls is writing political liberalism about having this kind of public reason or plural space that is protected from comprehensive doctrines. Right. right. And I guess you, you can approach this from, from two perspectives. One is the perspective of the theory of history and how the fact that Habermas doesn't keep the materialist theory of history allows him to go down this, uh, this different road. Uh, there's also the perspective of theory of morality, and perhaps political theory comes from these two things coming together. Um, because on the one hand, um, you have um, Horkheimer and Adorno are saying, not just that culture is produced by industry, um, but also that, uh, that these ideals um, promoted by liberalism aren't necessarily ideals that we would want to realize um, because they are not relating to what's right or what's good. They are uh, paying attention to parts of reality rather than the whole. They're distracting us from the good and making us focused on things that don't really give us happiness, don't really give us meaning, aren't really good. Uh, This pivot from objective to subjective reason is something that Horkheimer mourns rather than celebrates. not that objective reason uh, really existed beforehand, or that all forms of reason before liberalism were better than liberalism, but that um, he is at least not celebrating the liberal turn towards the worship of the individual, um, because that is um, still um, distracting us from the whole of reality and distracting us from re- what's really good. And so there is an implicit critique of Kant there, because uh, Kant. Uh, in the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals and in the critique of practical reason, held up free will, individual autonomy, as the foundation of morality uh, by distinguishing between 
the phenomenal world of causation and the noumenal world of free action, uh, Kant uh, said that we can we can presuppose that we are free because if we're not free, well then it's not right to um, uh, punish people for being bad and reward people for being good. And isn't that a great thing? Kant says. Well, I think. Well, I mean, Derek Parfit's retort to that is, no, it's not a great thing. And it's not a good idea um, to uh, value punishment and reward for their own sakes, because at the end of the day, uh, it, uh, firstly, that's not a nice thing. And secondly, um, it's not something that uh, has much basis in reality, because it's not really possible for individuals to be uh, totally autonomous, um, because we are physically embodied within this world. And uh, it's not really possible to escape that so long as we're in it. Um, and so um, we're part of the universe. Yeah. We're not separate actors acting as if we were gods from outside. We are right. part of it. And I think it, as it unfolds, it unfolds through us. Yeah. And I think there's a notion that not just that this is the case, that we are part of a broader whole, but that we ought to be part of a broader whole because meaning is not to be found in uh, in the disunity of things, but in the unity of all things, and in how things connect and relate to each other, um, division doesn't have any um, positive moral content. Uh, unity is that towards which we 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 strive, and uh, division is not something that um, either really exists on a deep level because everything is part of a broader whole, or that ought to. Uh, exist um, because division is something that uh, gets us away or the idea of division uh, gets us away from thinking about the whole, thinking about the good, uh, thinking about what's really there. Instead, we get distracted by the particular things, partly because it's those things that we depend upon for our, our survival. And so th there's this strange way in which the things that we need to do to survive aren't things that will uh, make us good people, um, and you know, and, yeah, 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 and and this is what part of why there is this intense debate over whether these liberal values have the potential to be emancipatory or get us caught in webs of individualism, right? Yeah, and now some of that is down to the way that these particular values are conceptualized, and you can imagine different ways of conceptualizing the values that might take them in different directions. There are different ways of thinking about what liberty or equality or representation might mean that might take you in a different direction. The issue is, will those conceptions of those terms ever be preferred in a culture which is dominated by oligarchs and their money? Yeah, yeah. Or will those values offer you... Yeah, uh, kind of trap you in the same way that in the Peanuts comic strip, Lucy traps Charlie Brown by holding the football and asking him to run up and kick it and then pulling it away at the last minute over and over again. And every time he goes, you're just going to pull it away. Uh, and she goes, not this time. I'm, I'm sorry. I really feel bad for you. And always, no matter what she says to get him to do it, she pulls it away. Uh, and that's the thing about those liberal values. They are kind of entrapping and enthralling because you think that you'll be able to conceptualize them in such a way that they'll be emancipatory. But this is predicated on an awful lot of faith in the liberal discourse and therefore ultimately in liberalism. And so it's no surprise that Habermas's book that is most this way comes out in the 90s in the heat of liberal optimism about 
liberalism's possibilities are. Yeah. Huge amount of optimism about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that Rawls and Habermas, who kind of closed out the 20th century and were the big influential theorists coming into the next century. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, these, these theorists, to a large degree, were theorists about why the liberal consensus of the 90s was okay and actually yeah. would work out for liberals and, uh, and, and even some socialists yeah. in the end. You know, Rawls, in his book, says, well, you could be a, a kind of liberal socialist or a democratic socialist, and that that would get you where you needed to go uh, if you wanted to pursue a little bit more aggressive uh, distributive program, right? There's a kind of attempt here to say, well, actually, uh, there can be a happy marriage between these things and that liberalism can gradually progressively develop over time yeah. into something that can give you socialism yeah. and, and or rules, give you yeah. a lot of the principles of justice, which you might expect socialism to deliver. Yeah. And Habermas right? and Rawls follow similar career trajectories too, because which kind of confirms in a way one might say that materialist theory of history, because they're both arguing in the 70s uh, for paying attention to um, distributions of um, wealth and power. Habermas is pointing towards the role of the economic uh, uh, system and the political state. And Rawls is uh, combining in his uh, theory of justice um, an appreciation of of liberal values um, with an attention to uh, wealth distribution and to minimizing uh, the, the 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 suffering of the of the least well off uh, materially. Um, but by the nineties, both Rawls and Habermas have um, turned in a more procedural direction, looking at ways of uh, instead of um, making sure people are materially okay making sure that the procedures of the state are such that uh, things are done in a fair way, um, uh, regardless of whether that necessarily satisfies everyone, because they are turning in this slightly more idealist direction, thinking that maybe through talking about things, we can uh, get out of this crisis, and through fixing the procedures, we can get out of this crisis, rather than transforming the basic relations of profit and power themselves. Yeah. Now, where does all of that go? So a lot of the uh, interest in Habermas, especially in the American discourse, has spilled into this deliberative democracy literature, right? And the deliberative democracy literature is a little bit radical, a little bit uh, in terms of the arrangements that it suggests for the state and for democracy. The main focus uh, of this literature is on redesigning democratic institutions and democratic systems in such a way that they protect this deliberative space, i.e. protect the life world, right? Now, a lot of people in this deliberative democracy literature are not socialist or Marxist or particularly interested in getting rid of capitalism, but they are interested in improving the fairness or at least perceived fairness of the liberal democratic system and ensuring up its legitimacy by leaning into certain kinds of reforms or revisions to democracy. And that particular current has really caught on, especially in the United States, especially in California. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then, of course, you have in Europe other moves in uh, kind of post-Frankfurt school spaces, emphasizing a need to uh, still, I think, more of the Remnants of the Frankfurt School in continental Europe are more 
pessimistic and have more in common with Adorno and Horkheimer and are a little bit more resistive to the Habermasian move. In Europe, there's more challenges to it coming from more directions in part because of the development of French post-structuralism and French political theory, which takes these critiques in lots of different directions that make it much harder to uh, make this optimistic move work. yeah. And uh, and also Italy, Italy too, Italian post-structuralism too. Uh, and even in the case of, say, Germany, you have uh, you know, theorists like Wolfgang Strick, who, yeah. while Strick continues to emphasize that he doesn't see how we can accept the way things are changing, also emphasizes that he doesn't see how we could possibly stop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the tension in, in Strick is that we, we don't seem to be able to put up with this, but also we don't seem able to do anything about it. And I think that that particular tension is a very productive one. Um, but we, we, could, we could go on and on. I think it's probably about time for us to wrap up for this week. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts, Edmund? Well, I guess there are lots of threads uh, that could be picked up upon uh, so it's quite difficult to uh, find exactly the thing to to leave on uh, but i think one of the i, mean, I guess it's important to note that the, the frankfurt school throughout its um progression is dealing both with questions of uh, political economy and with questions of uh, political morality both with what is the case and w- what ought to be the case or at least w- how people conceive what ought to be the case. Um, this analysis of the structures of politics and economics and of structures of thought uh, uh, go together, um, such as in Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, where Marcuse says that one-dimensional thought comes out of one-dimensional society. It's not a free-floating thing. It's the structures of industry and institutions that give rise uh, to specific forms of uh, Ideology, um, but there's also a sense in which you know you have to give um, particular consideration to the ideas themselves, and that uh, though it may well be the case that the conditions and the institutions are what produce the ideas, considering the ideas themselves also matters, and considering what normatively ought to be the case does does matter. Um, I think the difficulty is putting this into practice. So, you know, one of the um, ways in which people have thought about the Frankfurt School as well. Where is this leading? What kind of political practice flows from this? And there's a lot of disappointment around uh, politics uh, that is, is critical of the established order of things, uh, a lot of disenchantment with how things are going. Um, and I think one way of thinking about things is to try to uh, consider the ways in which the the system that we live in can be um, can be thought about, can be reformed, can be challenged. And you have, on the one hand, this more kind of revolutionary conception in Marx and Lenin of using the power of the modern state to uh, change, or in, in their case, abolish the profit motive um, to enact a really fundamental change to uh, 
to society that goes beyond capitalism, that though that doesn't quite go beyond the modern state. And if there's one thing I'd perhaps like to leave on, it's, it's this, this distinction between modernity as a whole, going back to the Renaissance, um, and capitalism in particular, which though its roots, as Mark shows, do go back to the uh, as far back as the 16th century and perhaps perhaps further back, um, capitalism proper arose really only in the 18th century, kicking off with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. And the modern state and capitalism do have this, this complex interrelationship. Um, but there's a sense in which, you know, though they do form a whole, they are, they are parts of a broader whole, um, a broader social order, as Nancy Fraser puts it. Um, and as Wolfgang Streak puts it, um, it's also the case that these things have potentially slightly different trajectories. Because as the Marxist-Leninist account suggests, like some people want to use the modern state to go beyond capitalism, and only after that, abolishing the abolishing the modern state, so using the modern state to go beyond capitalism, creating socialism where the modern state is still there. And only in communism is the modern state withering away, and in that transitionary period. The modern state exists without capitalism, and what then? Um, and I think there's a sense in which this view can be critiqued, and uh, there are a lot of validity to those uh, critiques. But it's also worth acknowledging, I think, the extent to which um, the, the state can't be uh, sidelined and can't be forgotten about. And I think one of Habermas's reasons for focusing on law is that he doesn't really want to use power to change the profit motive because. There's this view of power and profit as both governed by instrumental rationality. And so this desire to go to the things that aren't as, uh, don't feel as, um, uh, as morally corrupting, to use the, only the, the techniques that uh, allow people to keep their hands clean. And I think it's worth noting that in politics, especially in the modern age, it's not always that easy to be. Uh, perfectly good. We still live in that Machiavellian world of not being able to be perfectly good, not being able to just bring back substantive rationality like that. Instead, there is a kind of balance to be struck between these things. On the one hand, we have to pay attention to the fact that neither capitalism nor the modern state reflect the highest ideals of, of the good. But neither is it the case that it's possible to just create a utopia um, very quickly. Instead, I think there's an extent to which we have to muddle through. And these different approaches, the reformist approaches, the revolutionary approaches, the more moralistic approaches, and the more economically grounded approaches have to be balanced. And I think ultimately that's uh, that's what politics is about. Return to the theme running through this podcast, that there's a balance to be struck between, on the one hand, our, our spiritual needs, on the one hand, our material needs, and politics is the way in which we try to strike that balance between uh, doing what's right, doing what's good, but also satisfying the, the necessities of life. Uh, and in the end, I think if something practical does come out of this, and if there are political movements in the future that carry forward the legacy of the Frankfurt School and of critical theory in a practical way, it will be because it it will be a politics that successfully balances what we need um, materially with uh, what we need 
uh, spiritually and morally. Uh, unless that balance is struck between uh, attending to the needs of political economy and pursuing the highest ideals of political morality, we won't have either the substance or the style to make any, any movement work. And of course, when we talk about strategy and tactics and what to actually do to bring about a better world, uh, it becomes at that point it becomes very important how we conceptualize how this change occurs. Yeah, and this is the thing which makes it difficult in practice to maintain balances because very often people make mistakes about what the right move is tactically or strategically. They suggest things that we don't think will work. You know, and whatever theorist you are, wherever you are on these issues, a lot of people are going to disagree with you about what the next move is and what the right way to do it is. This is a problem which has pervaded the left for more than a century, yeah. right? And and the difficult thing here is it really matters whether you are fundamentally optimistic or pessimistic about liberal discourse. That's really right. important, right? Because if you are optimistic about the potential of liberal discourse, then liberal discourse can develop in a positive, progressive direction, even under a very, very dissatisfying, stultifying economic and political structure. What right? about modern but discourse? If you have going a more back to negative Hobbes attitude. Yeah. Well, I, you, know, you could stretch it back as far as you want to stretch it back. Sure. If you have a kind of negative attitude about the culture, if you have a positive attitude about the culture, then all of this stuff can eventually work itself out, even without very much real immediate intervention. And you can take a longer approach to it, as Habermas does. But if you believe that the culture is not developing in a constructive direction, and that its end game is not especially good, then you need some kind of economic change which fundamentally alters the way that that culture is developing, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the recent strategic entanglements over things like uh, Bernie Sanders and class first versus identity politics. A lot of this is about whether there needs to be some kind of fundamental change in the structure of our economy so that we can have a better discourse or whether the discourse can be left alone and permitted to develop, right? right? Because some people have faith in the existing discourse, and some people are concerned that the kind of political economy we have is not capable of producing the kind of discourse which can deliver positive change. Right, right. right. Um, and yeah. I, tend to, I tend to be in this camp. I tend to go, well, because we subject people to so much economic stress, so much precarity, so much instability, they don't have the energy to engage constructively in discursive spaces. They bring their stresses and their anxieties and their sources of upset into those cultural discussions. And the cultural discussions become about looking for people to blame for their stresses and looking for people to target and other and making friend-enemy distinctions. And all of that goes in a quite negative direction. Yeah, And that's where I really don't get on the bus with a lot of this stuff that is percolating around in the contemporary space. I don't buy that liberal discourse is capable on its own of producing positive values because I believe that the way that our economy is structured makes it impossible for people to engage constructively in that space. And perhaps this, this hints at a distinction, we've hinted at before, between substance and style, that despite the fact that 
we may have a substantive critique that reaches back uh, to not not just through uh, liberalism but through modernity m- more broadly that the style that kind of politics uh, that we might support would have to adopt would be a style that has to reflect how people feel at this given time regardless of the fact of whether we you know like that style or not and i guess what well, i guess it could be possible to justify this by saying, well, it's just a style, it's just an aesthetic. But it's also the case that the style comprises certain certain positions that have kind of moral content. Uh, and in this way, it's not perf- possible to be. Uh, I think that Machiavellian point is still kind of true, that it's not possible to be perfectly good because it, to be perfect is to fail to attend to the the grittiness of the modern world and to the difficulty of changing things because without the right economic and political conditions for morality you can't have morality and so that there's a sense in which putting politics economics first and putting what we need to get morality first uh, would be a better strategy than uh, realizing the utopia right now because you co- utopia can't be bought without getting those substantive reforms through so perhaps we should you know employ whatever style is you know best fitted for getting that substance through because the substance is really what's going to change things and of course i think there's also a third position which says that we should make things as bad as possible so that people with no alternative will have to rebel you know that there's that third position uh, that is that views immiserating people as a way of getting change. But I think the kind of change you get when you immiserate people in that way is not the change you want. I yeah. think the change is born more of anomie, a lust for roles, rather than alienation, an attempt to get out of roles. And even if it uh, did have some possibility of leading eventually in some kind of positive direction, you know, I'm reminded of you know, Weber's balance between conviction and responsibility. It would be very irresponsible and reckless and uh, and perhaps you know, immoral to support the immiseration of people for the sake of some future point of emancipation. Because firstly, you can't be sure that, that that point of freedom in the future, that utopia will ever come. Um, and, and secondly, um, in itself, it's, it's being way too instrumentally rational, regarding people as means rather than ends. And I think if there is something that we can keep from Kant, I think it is is the notion that we shouldn't treat people merely as means. Um, I think the notion of autonomy in Kant is more problematic as the notion of that it's it's okay to have um, uh, punishment of people um, for some kind of internal uh, moral uh, sins that they may have committed. But the notion that we shouldn't treat people as means to an end, I think is quite a good moral concept to have. Um, and having having that moral concept and, with us will help us ensure that the politics doesn't stray too far from the good. And, and historically, we, we've seen what happens when you immiserate people until they rebel. We've seen the Soviet experiment. We've seen fascism. We've seen those things, and they're not good. Uh, immiserating people until they rebel is a bad strategy. So too is waiting for the culture to solve the problem for us uh, and just kind of having faith in in the culture. I think that there's got to be some kind of economic change. Now, whether that economic change is brought about through political means or through the continued development of capitalism in the direction of automation, uh, I think there's an interesting debate to be had there about the role of non-reformist reforms versus the role of of 
capitalism disrupting itself yeah. through material processes. And it would probably have to be both. Uh, because of, right. Well, per, possibly. <laughs> the thing is that you need certain kinds of reforms to have people who are in position to have the right kind of response to technological change. Yeah. Or even reforms and that encourage. So you need yeah. to have certain... Well, reforms that encourage technological change are one thing, but yeah. people have to respond to that technological change in the right kind of way because you could respond to that technological change in a very you know, right-wing libertarian neo-feudalist way if you wanted to. There's no guarantee that people respond to technological change in the socialist way. Yeah. And we, we talked in the episode about the, uh, the revolutionary crisis of World War One and Marxism about um, reasons given um, why these different strategies failed, why, say, in, in the Soviet Union, uh, the fact that you had this division between workers and peasants, this economic disunity, led to this extreme political uh, tyranny, uh, while in the post-war uh, social democracies, um, the relatively high economic unity of 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 the working class through trade unions meant that there weren't really you know effective political structures for channeling really transformative uh, change and so you know economic just as economic uh, unity um sorry just as economic disunity um begat ec political uh unity um with um um, with uh, attempting to do uh, socialism in contexts of um, early capitalism, attempting to do some kind of uh, socialism or social reform in middle capitalism uh, failed because you didn't have enough political uh, unity of those of those movements, and the movements we've seen have often been quite fragmentary, uh, and the left in you know, Western Marxism is renowned for being quite divided among various different splinter groups, and uh, so there's the the critique of uh, Marxism in uh, in the Soviet Union and uh, Maoist China as being totally rigid and authoritarian, versus Marxism in in the West being something that's very splintered and or almost democratic, but in such a radically kind of um, a dissipated way that there's no central current that can unite people, and that's that's that ideological uh, contrast is kind of uh, a reflection of what's going on in the political economy. And perhaps if something is going to happen, it would be as a result of some kind of balance among the economic forces, some ability to kind of use a semi-unified uh, but not fully unified. Um, working class to create some kind of political organization that itself is balanced, that itself is neither extremely uh, tyrannical nor extremely anarchical, but fits at that, at that golden mean. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you get to the moment of how to actually strategically do the golden mean, that's the part where it gets really hard. How do you translate it into sub, into a concrete proposal that fits yeah. the specific situation? And with the right, but that's yeah. always got to be responsive to the specific context that you're in. Right. It's hard to theorize that uh, ex ante. Yeah. But of course, if we were having a whole episode about how to actually do something, then we would have to talk about what it would actually mean to cash that out. Sure. But as for today, I think that we've kind of hit our, yeah. our limit for time. Yeah. So 
Uh, We'll wrap up for today, but of course, we'll be back with more episodes. And thank you guys so much for listening. And you can, of course, if you want to support the show, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash politicaltheory101, all lowercase, no space. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.